Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. God willing, we'll close out chapter 2 this morning. Um, I always struggle with wondering whether to continue in an exposition or to do a standalone message on the Sunday before Christmas, but the more I looked at the conclusion of chapter 2, the more I thought it was fitting and appropriate, celebratory, um, and I hope it'll be a blessing for you this Christmas season. While you turn there, I'll remind you uh, at a macro level of how the letter to the Ephesians is laid out. The first three chapters covering largely doctrine or truth or what is or beliefs. In the second half of the book, uh, the last three chapters covering our response, our application or our duty. If you want to go doctrine or duty, or if you want to consider it in regards to the uh, verbs, we have indicative verbs and imperative verbs or orthodoxy, orthopraxy, however you want to break it up. But there seems to be a pretty clear divide in the first half and the second half of here is what is, here's what God has done, here is what is true, and here's how to live in light of that. So we're in the middle of that first section. In chapter 1, after a brief greeting, Paul entered into a benediction, a blessing of God as he recounted the Trinitarian God's work on our behalf to save us and to give us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Jesus, chapter 1, ends with a pastoral prayer of Paul And what he's praying for is that this healthy, growing church, a church without any major, specific, notable problems, would grow in their knowledge of what God has done. You see the flow? He's going to tell them what God's done, but he wants them to understand just how important that is. And we reminded ourselves that even if you're here today growing, healthy, vibrant, what you and I need desperately is to know more fully what God has done for us. We saw that in Paul's prayer in one uh, 15, for this reason, I, as I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remember you in my prayers. Was he praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. And three things. What does he want us to know? What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And that third petition, that we might know the greatness of his powers, where he ends chapter one with and picks up in chapter two. The example of God's power is the resurrection and enthronement of our Lord, And as he begins chapter 2, he enters into two contrasts, two before and afters, then and now. The first, individual, and primarily vertical. And so, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, the problem is laid out. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were dead, and we were enslaved, and we were destined for judgment and wrath. And Paul's solution that he shows what God has done, because in in both instances of these contrasts, the problem is laid out, and then God is the decisive actor, not us. He doesn't say, here's what you did to fix the problem, but, but God... Verse 4, and what Paul stresses is the solution to our problem 
is tied up in our union with Christ. He, as far as we can tell, coins at least two words. He takes the preposition for with, the Greek word soon, and attaches it to three things. In verse 5, we are made to... We are made alive together with, one Greek word, you're made alive together with Christ. Verse 6, raised us up together with him. Again, raised us together with Christ. And in verse 6, seated us with, all individual words, where he takes these truths that he's already declared are true of Christ, and he makes it clear God in Christ has done those very things to us. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. Christ's Exaltation is our exaltation. Christ's enthronement is our enthronement. This is what God has done. We were dead in Christ. We're alive. We are under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. We've been raised above him. We were sons and children of wrath. We were destined to rule. That's the glorious reality of what God has done. And then he ends the contrast with application. The so what? And the so what is that because of what God has done for us on our behalf, he made us to live differently. Verse 10. Here's the the application. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our our problem from before is characterized by the way we used to walk in verse 2, in which you once walked. Now there's a new walk. Okay, the second contrast, which we'll close out today, is similar and different. The format's similar. There's the before and after. In both instances, God is the decisive actor. Verse 4, but God, versus verse 13, but now... But here's the difference. Now we're dealing with corporate problems. This is addressed to Gentiles. So individually, each one of us who are Christians here today, one at a time, individually, we're made alive with Christ. That wasn't a corporate action. It was individual. But here, we're going to look at our corporate problems and the solution that Jesus Christ has made for us for our corporate problems. Similarly, Paul, in our message this morning, you'll see, is going to make three words that together with. But now, rather than the focus being vertical, it's horizontal. He wants to focus on our union together, even as we're united with Christ. And just as in the first contrast, there's an application, there's a so what. That's what we're looking at this morning. What is the implications? What are the implications of the great salvation God has wrought? So <clears throat> I'd like to begin by reading the second contrast, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We'll be focusing on verses 19 to 22, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that... You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to God, to the Father. So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Lord God, as we look to the glorious realities of what you've done. I pray that by your spirit, you would give us strength to comprehend, to understand the magnitude, the greatness, the fullness of our salvation, the unity we have both with you and with each other in Christ, and that we would live accordingly. I'm sure many of your homes are decorated with um, trees with a growing pile of presents underneath them. And I don't know about you, but sometimes we'll receive uh, boxes of presents, and inside the boxes are multiple presents. My sisters will do this to try to save on postage, and sometimes they don't exactly trust that Serena and I will distribute them properly, so the box itself is told, do not open till Christmas morning, and then you open it on Christmas morning, and lo and behold, within the box are a multitude of presents. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I'm suggesting to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul is laying it out, is similar to that. There are many benefits tied up in this gift of grace from God. And sometimes when you get one of those boxes of multiple presents, one of the items in there, one of the gifts is so pleasing to you, so delightful, so wonderful, meets some need you had that you can sometimes neglect the others. You get the CD you wanted, the book you wanted, the game you wanted, the the watch you wanted, and it's so delightful, it's so wonderful, and you pull it out and you, you gaze at it, you interact with it, that you leave in the box other good, gracious gifts unnoticed. And Paul is laying out the multitude gifts and benefits in the gospel. And for us, rightly, we center on the gift in the gospel of the forgiveness of our sins. That is absolutely the chief, most important gift. Without it, all the others are meaningless. If God is angry at us, if we cannot deal with that, if that wrath cannot be removed, there is no other good gift that will benefit or serve us. And so we sing about Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Amen. Hallelujah. However, I think we can be so delighted with that gift in the gospel that we can neglect others. And so I've been trying to stress, as we've been going through chapter 2, the other gifts. For instance, you were made alive in Christ. God regenerated you. And you were raised with Christ. You were freed from the powers of this world. You've been enthroned with Christ. You will rule with him in the coming age. These are all truths of the gospel. And, And here's what I mean. They're not things that some Christians attain to and others don't. There are different levels of reward. Not all Christians will attain to the different levels of reward. If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven. If you're a Christian, you've been raised from the dead. If you're a Christian, you will rule with Christ. These are realities that are true for everyone. They're they're part of the gift of the gospel. They're not something we arrive at. They're the ground and foundation. And Paul stresses that our union with each other and our union with God is also one of those foundational realities. It's not something we arrive at, it's something we start from. It's one of the reasons why the 
The uniform exhortation of Scripture is not to create peace, but to maintain, to keep the peace made by the Spirit, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. God has made peace for us. We are to maintain it. And so Paul considers the the pressing problems we had as Gentiles, problems we don't generally consider, largely because in the West and in our day and age, we rarely think of ourselves in corporate groups. We're so used to being individuals. The customer's always right. You can have it your way. We don't generally think corporately. I, I doubt many of us, prior to our study of Ephesians 2, considered, man, as Gentiles, we got some serious problems. I, I don't know about you, but I, prior to studying Ephesians 2, had not given much thought to that. And yet Paul is emphatic. There were real problems, real disadvantages. There was real Jewish privilege. And he lists the five disadvantages he wants to highlight for us in chapter 2. We were, verse 12, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, those are real problems. And we learned what God has done to solve those problems. And we read about that. In the middle section of this contrast, the solution, the but now, starting in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, one of the realities is that on the cross, even as Jesus is paying for our sin, even as he is providing a satisfaction to the Father on our behalf, even as he is atoning for us, he is also uniting us. He is fulfilling the law perfectly, enabling the law to be, in Paul's shocking terms, abolished. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. See, Paul zeroing in on the Mosaic law as the primary instrument of separation. That if a Jew is going to be faithful to the Mosaic law, a Jew will of necessity separate himself out from the goyim, from the peoples, from the Gentiles, from the nations. And in fulfilling the law and in dying on the cross, the law as a, as a ruler, as a, as a lex, as a code of obligation for the believer is set aside. And now we learn that God has taken both Jew and Gentile in Christ and made something new. He's made the church. He's going to get to that in chapter 3. He hasn't named that yet. He's using different metaphors first. He's made us both one. And again, it's not that the Gentiles become Jews. That's what some think. But Paul is insistent that rather Jew and Gentile become some third new thing. A new man. And now he's trying to explain to us what the implications of that are. We ended our last study by considering that Christ has united us such that together, all of us, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, have access to the Father through Jesus Christ in one spirit. Look at verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. What's the nature of this peace? Here's the peace we have. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All of us come to God the same way. All of us come to the Father through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through him. And we all come in the same spirit. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at the, the consequence, the so then of verse 19. And I just want you to consider this three ways, three ways, three metaphors that Paul's going to use of our unity and our privilege and our blessing. The first is in verse 19a, God's kingdom, God's kingdom. Now this is seen in the simple phrase, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. Now this is directly answering one of the very first problems listed in verse 12. We are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The solution to that, he's made us both into something new. And as that new man, we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he again reminds us of our past. We were strangers and aliens. And again, we saw in in our previous study that in the Old Testament, the nations were invited to come to God. It wasn't that only Jews um, could be saved, but you couldn't remain a Gentile. So Rahab abandons her loyalty to her people of Jericho. And she's brought into the messianic line. She's the mother or the grandmother of Boaz, who marries Ruth, a Moabitess. So we, we have precedent and examples of the nations being brought in, but they're brought into Israel. They don't remain the nations. And in so far as we remain Gentiles, we remained strangers and aliens, those who are outside. But that's not the truth for us anymore. We were all born into this world, according to verse 3, children of wrath, alienated from God, and alienated from each other. And such is no longer the case if you are in Christ. So you're past, strangers and aliens, but you're present. You are, and here's Paul's first together word, citizens together. And I, I know that hyphenated blank is awkward English, but I'm trying to highlight the reality. Because we, we're so used to looking at things individually, individualistically. I, I, I use the analogy of the present, the box of presents under the tree. You ever get a gift, if you have more than one kid, you ever get gifts for the kids to share? And inevitably the question comes, well, who gets to have it? Well, all of you. Yeah, but, but really, who gets to have it? Right? We, we can have a hard time with a corporate gift. But Paul's insistent here. And, and I'm not denying that you individually are citizens. But his emphasis here is we are citizens together. That's the first together word. We're citizens together. It's one word. Soon politoi. With citizens. Citizens with. Citizens together. We are citizens together with the saints. So we used to be strangers and aliens. Now we're all citizens together. And he further emphasizes not just the Jew and Gentile together, but together with all the saints. Now, whether he means all the saints living or even looking back over history, I think they're both true. You are citizens together with the saints. Which means then, your next blank, we have a true homeland. We have a true homeland. Which means your citizenship, first and foremost, is not American. Or if you're an expatriate, your country of birth. Your citizenship, first and foremost, is of another city, another nation. Listen to how Paul speaks of it in Philippians 2. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the author of Hebrews 11, I think making some of that connection to with all the saints. He, he goes through in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11, listing example after example. 
Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph. He says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Even as someone like Abraham owned and ruled large portions of land. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Ever ever wonder why in the hall of faith, Joseph, what he gets commended for? If you go through, some of them are really obvious. Abraham offering up Isaac, you could say, oh man, that is a pinnacle of faith. Abraham leaving his possessions and and following God to a country he knew not. Man, that's a mark of faith. But what does Joseph get, get named for? In faith, Joseph spoke of his bones. And he said, hey, in a couple hundred years, I know that our God is going to lead you out of here. And you make sure you take my bones with you. You bury them in the land that God has promised. Why is that so significant? Because Joseph, of course, was the number two in Egypt. If anybody had reason to view his citizenship primarily on this earth, it's Joseph. After all, his people had cast him out. His people had sold him into slavery. His people had rejected him. Egypt welcomed him in. Egypt rewarded his faithfulness. Egypt honored him. He served Egypt well. But Joseph says, I'm not an Egyptian. Oh, no. When, when, when our God leads you out, you, you take my bones with you. You make sure I get buried in the land God's promised. Because he, even in his position, is an exile seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are citizens with, which means we're under the protection of a king. We're we're subjects of a kingdom, and we have a king who will defend us, a king who will fight for us. We have protections as citizens. That's emphasized in the book of Acts when when Paul is being beaten illegally and identifies he's a Roman citizen immediately. His interlocutors are shocked and scared and they back off because if he's a Roman citizen, then he's under protection of Caesar. And Caesar has declared how his citizens are to be treated. He has a powerful ruler who's looking out for his interests. And so as people who are formerly aliens and strangers, we have a king, we have a kingdom, we have a citizenship. That's the first wonderful reality of what this means. And we have it together. We have it together. Behold your countrymen and your fellow citizens. And as you look across the globe at the church in other nations, behold your fellow citizens as well. Okay, so God's city. You have a true homeland. Second, God's family. It's the next metaphor Paul uses is even more intimate. It's a great blessing to be a fellow citizen with the saints, to be a member of God's kingdom. It's an even greater blessing to be, as he calls it next, members of the household of God. Members of the household of God, God's family. First blank, we are members of God's household, which is even closer than just family, right? This season of the year, you're going to see much of your extended household, but many of those people, you may under your breath say, praise the Lord, do not dwell in your own house, right? You're happy to see them, 
and you're happy to leave, <laughs> right? We're not just members of God's family, we're members of his household. This is, this is real intimacy. And this is a remarkable turnaround for people who at the end of verse 3 were described as children of wrath. We were that far out. We were strangers and aliens without God, without hope. Now we're under the same roof, as it were. Now, Paul was born a Roman citizen. The magistrate who was trying him bought his citizenship. But as members of God's household, we are his adopted sons and daughters. There's your next blank. This is, again, tying off of what he said previously in chapter 1. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why our own ability to model this, those of you who've adopted in our own body, it's such a wonderful picture of what God has done for each and every one of us. He's brought us into his household. The, the king of the universe, the God of creation, has brought us into his household. Another reality, I'll quote Tim Keller here, but only a child dares wake a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water. And yet we have a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. But again, Paul's emphasis here is not fundamentally vertically. As wonderful as that is, he's looked at that previously, but rather the emphasis is horizontal. We're all part of that household. We're all under that roof. Because point C, he is our father. And these are all truths he's going to make a a big deal of later in the letter. But point D, we are all therefore his family. We are all therefore family. That's really the emphasis. I often will um, emphasize to my children, you, you guys cannot quarrel. You must work things out. You must work through things. Your brothers, your sisters. And, and we are family. And that again is what Paul is going to, going to emphasize and the application he's going to make. Turn, turn to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Just to jump ahead to where we'll be in a few months as Paul begins to apply the truths that he's setting up here, look at what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So remember the flow. I want you to grasp the greatness of your calling so that here he can say, well, I want you to walk in a manner consistent with, worthy of that calling to which he has called you, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he reminds us of some of these truths we're seeing right here. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And in all. We are all members of that household. We have one father. We have one calling. We have one spirit in which we have access to the father. This is the foundation he's laying for our unity. And he's going to call on us to act like that. To act like family. To love each other enough to do the difficult work of working through things. And maintaining the unity that he has made. Jesus himself models this reality. In our study of Luke, if you remember, those many years ago. In Luke 8, Jesus famously was teaching 
and speaking to his disciples and his mother and his brothers came to him. They could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And he's recognizing a familial relationship that transcends blood. A little later in Luke's gospel, in Luke 18, Peter, showing off again, says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not many receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. See, Jesus is expecting those familial relationships to be replaced, be added to, and if you do the math, it's in the church. This is the reason why in 1 Timothy 5, listen to Paul's instruction to Timothy. How is Timothy to relate to the various peoples in the church at Ephesus? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You see the consistency here? We are a household of faith. That's the language Paul uses in, in Philippians 3. I write this letter in case I'm delayed so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That is the church. We're a family. We're God's household and family. And much of what Paul has to say in the second half of Ephesians is how we are to conduct ourselves under that one roof, in that one home. But now... Point three, Paul, midway discussing this first metaphor of a household, switches it subtly. You'll notice the shift, right? In, from verse uh, 19 to 20, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, now we're shifting to a house as a building. And we're going to learn it's a very specific building. Point three, God's temple. So first God's kingdom, then God's family, now God's temple. These are all ways of speaking of us corporately as the church. What are we as the church? We're we're God's kingdom. We're We're as ambassadors. We're as outposts in a hostile country. We're his family and household. Most amazing of all, we're God's temple. God's temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So three things here under this reality that we are the temple. First, we're going to look at the temple's firm foundation, its firm foundation. This building, this structure that we all are has a foundation. The foundation is not the thoughts and the opinions of men. The foundation is not the, the latest crazes or what Oprah Winfrey has to say. The foundation is sure and unchanging. And there's two pieces to it. First, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There's some discussion over what the apostles and prophets mean. Some have suggested that this is a reference to the Old Testament prophets who wrote scripture and the New Testament apostles who wrote scripture. And the thought being... It's built upon the foundation of God's word. Um, that, that sounds good. It just doesn't seem to be the way Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians. Look at chapter 3 of Ephesians. That same phrase, apostles and prophets, is repeated in that exact order. 
Look at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. These these are contemporaries. These are people alive now. And turn over to chapter 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers... Now, even though the first suggestion, um, I think, is misguided in how it interprets apostles and prophets, I think the practical application is nearly identical, because the whole point in chapter 3, verse 6, is that these are the people through whom God has disseminated his word and his will. These are the ones who have taught the church, the apostles as they write and interpret the scripture, the prophets as they speak for God. So when you take the apostles and the prophets as the foundation of the church, what does that mean? It's God's will and God's word. The foundation of the church is the word that came from the apostles, the word that came from the prophets of what God had said. So practically it does, I think, mean the same thing. You're blank here is the word of God. The foundation of the church, the record of the apostles and prophets that we have is, is right here. It's a scripture for us. This letter that the Apostle Paul wrote is part of that foundation of this structure. Never never forget that. This building, this this glorious reality of being God's temple can have no other foundation. The temptation for us will be to make the foundation of the church the wisdom of man. The foundation of the church to be pop philosophy or psychology. Always and forever, the foundation of God's people has got to be God's word. The other piece of that foundation being Christ Jesus himself, his person and work. Of course, there's no conflict there. Jesus himself is the word of God. So it's God's word telling us who Jesus is, what he has done on our behalf, how we're to order ourselves in response to that. The foundation of this temple, the church, is God's word and the one who is God's word, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. It can be built upon nothing else. What is its purpose? And how is it built? We'll answer those questions in reverse order. Verse 21, you'll notice, by the way, the parallel of 21 and 22, in him, or in whom, and 22 in him, identical in the Greek. We get the parallel construction. So he's telling us we're being built into a structure. The whole structure is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And next we see in its sovereign construction, the first in him. And the next, together word. So remember the first is we're citizens together with the saints. Now, in him, the whole building being joined together. Together joined. Again, the emphasis here is in our unity. We, we are... The temple of God in this passage, as and in so much as we are unified. Now, yes, I know in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul will say that you yourself individually are God's temple, and that's why you shouldn't sleep with prostitutes. And that's true, and that's good. That, but he's talking here corporately of us as God's people, Jew and Gentile, as his church. We are in a very special way God's temple, corporately. Distinct from the way your body and my body may be the Lord's temple. 
And so the first point is that in him, the whole building being joined together, again, that unity grows. There's your next plank, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, this is a crucial point because, again, we're so individualistic. And it's easier for us, especially in a consumer culture, to say, you know what? My growth as a Christian, my growth is an individual matter. And I superintend my growth. Thank you very much. That's, that's not what Paul says here. And that's not the point of application Paul makes later. Turn to chapter 4 again. This is crucial. We have a responsibility for each other's discipleship and growth because it happens corporately. We grow together or we don't grow at all. That's what Paul says. Pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, there's another metaphor for the church. We're a family. We're a nation. We're a body, we're a temple. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Which, to comment briefly, we have, we have not attained that yet. We've got to keep going. Negatively, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But, now here's the positive growth. Watch this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ Jesus. How how does that happen, Paul? From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The, the, the body only grows when each part is worked, working properly, joined together. And this notion that you can go off in a corner, get some books, listen to some podcasts, and grow significantly is, is an error. We grow as a people. We grow as this building. We grow as a body. We need each other. I need you to grow. You need me to grow. We need each other, speaking the truth to each other to grow. And only when each part is working properly, each joint is working properly, will we grow. And that's the wonderful reality Paul is laying the foundation for back here in Ephesians 2. In him, the whole building being joined together is growing. Its growth is in relationship to its being joined together, its unity together. It's why working through issues of sin, working through issues of conflict is so critical. We can't leave those cracks and fissures. We need to maintain the unity of the Spirit so that we can grow. And finally, we see its holy function, its sovereign construction. It's being joined together by the Lord. And here's your third and final together word. In him, we are being built together. Similar ideas. I think that the the emphasis in the first in him is we are glued, joined together. Here, we're being built together. So not only are we being held together by him, but then as we're held together, we're being built together. Again, our, our being built is a corporate Activity, the Lord is building his church. In him we are being built together. But look at this amazing statement at the end here. What's the function of this temple? Into a dwelling place for God and the Spirit. That should make your jaws drop. 
What is the reality that we celebrate at Christmas time? It's summed up in Jesus' name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the incarnation, we know that Jesus left his heavenly abode, and he humbled himself, and he took on flesh, and truly now, God is with and living among us. And we marvel at his humility, at his humbling himself, and becoming obedient. We marvel that our God would dwell with us. May I suggest that the, the incarnation of our Lord coming to live with us is to make it possible that God can here come and dwell with us in an even fuller sense. I think this is, by the way, the heart of the notion of what temple means. If you wonder, what's a temple? Why do we need temples? I think biblically, there's a lot going on in temples, but if I were to pick one thing, it would be a temple. A temple, biblically, is where God dwells with man. Some even see in the garden where God walked with Adam and Eve this notion of temple. But surely by the time we get to the tent of meeting with Moses, what's what's so unique about the tent of meeting? God met with Moses face to face as a man meets with a man. But then the people um, worship the golden calf and Moses goes up on the mountain. He pleads with God not only to forgive their sins, which God does, but initially he says he will not go up with them. He'll send his angel to lead them. And Moses says, no. What do we we have that differentiates us from all the other nations if our God doesn't dwell? It's you are in our midst. And God's response is, okay, I will be in your midst, but we're going to need some rules. And you get the entire tabernacle code. Here's what it will take for this holy God to be in the midst and dwell with his people. And so Solomon, when he dedicates his temple, marvels again at this notion of God dwelling with his people. Listen to... uh, 2 Chronicles 6.18, the prayer of dedication. Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And so all of the sacrificial system and all of the washings and all of the rules are to make it clear. If God, this holy God, is going to dwell with this sinful people, there need to be some rules. Guidelines. There needs to be some barriers and cleansings and structures in place so that God doesn't devour the people in his holiness. Then, hundreds of years later, in the streets of Jerusalem, a Jewish carpenter says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The apostle John tells us that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why? Because Jesus Christ is where God meets with man. He has come to dwell with us. In John 1.14, he even says as much, the word became flesh, and the Greek word literally tabernacled among us. And so Jesus is the temple of God. But Jesus is now in heaven, and we now realize that this notion of temple is now passed on as this blessing to us. The church is his temple. The church is where God meets with man. So Jesus can talk about the church's judgments, that wherever two or three are gathered, behold, there he is. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 can say, when you are gathered together and the Lord is present with you, we we become a dwelling place for God. This is absolutely amazing. God dwells in our midst. And this is not speaking of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of me or you, but rather the reality, the glorious reality, that when the church is joined together, when the, as the church is growing, God is building us up to be a dwelling place for him. And this is where people in the world today come to meet with God. 
They come to, we have the words of peace. We implore them, right, to be reconciled to God. We are the ones bringing God and man together as we preach the gospel. And ultimately, turn, turning your Bibles will close in Revelation 21. Let me see where this thread of temple finishes off. It starts with the tent of meeting, goes to the tabernacle, goes to Solomon's temple, God dwelling with man, to Jesus saying he's the temple, to the church being the temple. But look at how the story ends. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now jump ahead to verse 22. So this the eternal state. God is fully, finally with his people. What isn't there in the eternal state? Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty. And I think what John's trying to indicate is in, in the new heavens and the new earth, the place that we are headed for is, is a place where God is fully with man everywhere. There's no localized place you go to to be with God. But in one sense, all of creation is temple. All of creation is is at peace with and dwelling with God and God with man. And the city had no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is where things are headed, and so for right now, we have the glorious privilege being made one. This is why we are made one. This is why God went to such great lengths to make us one, to tear down the dividing wall, to fashion one new man so that he might make us his people, is his kingdom. He might make us part of his household, that ultimately he might build us and unite us and build us up as a place where he could dwell. As, as we carry on his work reconciling the world to him by preaching the gospel, by inviting men and women everywhere to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now that is, is a gift that keeps on giving. That is just another one of the glorious blessings of the gospel. Yes, we're forgiven. And there's so much more that is true.